0: Well, happy new year and happy new series, happy new series in the book of James. Um, Yes, very, very excited to be starting our new uh, series, looking at the book of James. Um, Very excited because as I've looked at the book a little bit over the last couple of weeks, I've come to think that it is one of the most important books for the church right now, right at this moment as we enter 2024. One of the things you'll often hear Christians say is the world is complicated and confusing and seemingly increasingly complicated and confusing. And how on earth do you go about living as a Christian, living out your faith in a co- consistent way that works? And James is going to help us to live out our faith in a way that works. Because James is a book filled with wisdom. And wisdom is what we need to do that, to live out faith in a way that works in the everyday. And uh, when I say wisdom, it's important to understand what the Bible means by wisdom. There's wisdom literature in the Bible. What what is wisdom from the Bible's perspective? I've got a couple of pictures here that might help us. Um, One of somebody carving some meat, one of somebody sawing a plank of wood there. In both cases, you'll sometimes say to people, You've got to cut with the grain. You've got to cut in a certain way in order to do it properly, for it to work right. Uh, What we're saying is the wood or the meat, there's an internal structure. There's an internal logic to the way that meat or that wood works. And if you understand the internal structure of the meat, of the wood, uh, it'll make the job a lot easier. You'll be able to cut through properly. Now, the Bible says the universe is like that. There is an internal logic, there is an internal structure, there is a grain to the universe, a grain that God has put there, because he made the world with wisdom and in wisdom. And so wisdom is the thing we need to work out the grain of the universe and to live our life in a way that works with the way God has made things. Hopefully that makes sense. That's what wisdom is. And the book of James is a book of wisdom. It's going to help us see what that grain is in the universe, the internal logic, the structure of the universe that God's made, and help us to live out our faith in a way that moves with that grain, not against it. The book of James is full of practical teaching and uh, down-to-earth, punchy, everyday images helping us to do just that. And so it's not a surprise that it is a book that has been loved and cherished by Christians down the centuries. Uh, some of the key influences on James, as he writes, are the Old Testament wisdom books, especially Proverbs. You hear a lot of similar themes from the book of Proverbs come back in James. And most of all, the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. As you read James, you'll, you'll, you'll find it very familiar, and it'll echo things that Jesus said, uh, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, because it is a book filled with wisdom. Uh, filled with uh, helping us to understand that grain of the universe so that we can live consistent lives of faith that work. That's what the book's all about. Uh, And as we begin in chapter 1, James is going to set the the agenda, so to speak, and and get our hearts and minds thinking about and focused on this this wisdom to get us longing for it and wanting it. So we're going to think about that theme of wisdom in these early chapters uh, through a few different headings. And here's the first one, the goal of wisdom, the goal of wisdom. And you can find the goal of wisdom in verse 4 of our reading. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Uh, And the Greek word for complete there is is perfect, uh, literally reaching your end, reaching your goal, being the person you were made to be made whole and complete uh, the idea in verse 4 is of a fully integrated life what do i mean by that i mean a life where what someone what you say and what you think and how you act and what you believe and how you feel and what you desire all match up they're all consistent all the way down the line so your beliefs are worked out in your words and your actions and they're consistent all the way. Now, as I describe that, they're all in harmony. The way you think, the way you feel, the way you act is in harmony. As I describe that to you, I think there'd be a few thoughts that run around your mind. One might be, that sounds kind of beautiful. And maybe there is somebody you know, a person who has an integrated life, a person of integrity, someone who what you see is what you get. Who they are on the inside is reflected by who they are on the outside, what, how they live. Uh, that kind of matching up. And when you find it, when you see it, it is impressive. It is beautiful. Partly because it's actually quite rare. I was reading a book a, a few years ago on the Renaissance and, um, by a guy called Will Durant, and he, he has a section on the artist Sandro Botticelli. Botticelli led, shall we say, an interesting life. Uh, okay, I'll say no more than that. Uh, but he has this, this quote about Botticelli. He says, Like all of us, He was many men, turned on one or other of his selves as the occasion demanded and kept his real self hidden, a frightened secret from the world. And I read that and thought, oh, that's good. Uh, It resonated with me because there's bits of me that I'm like, yeah, I know I'm one person in that group, but I'm somebody a little bit different over here. There's bits of me I keep hidden over this side and bits of me. We are like that. And James is going to say, no, the the goal of our faith, the goal of wisdom is to make us fully integrated, complete, perfect, consistent, whole. And this is the wise way to live. This is living in line with the universe's direction. And we can see that if we just think about the opposite for a moment. So one of the things James is going to talk about is speech and speaking truth. Speaking truth is wise, and telling lies is not wise. Why is that the case? Just think about what happens when you tell a lie to somebody. Psychologically, what goes on? What has happened the moment you tell a lie is is you've created a whole new world. And so now your head has two worlds. There's the real world, where what actually happened happened. And now you've created this fake world that's the world of your words, and maybe you've been in the situation, or you know someone who has, who get caught in a web of lies. They tell another lie to cover the first, and then another, and then another, and then another. And all of a sudden, they're multiplying all these different worlds in their head, and they've got to remember, what did I say to them? What did I say to them? Can I catch up with, it's exhausting, right? Trying to keep that many worlds in your head at once, you're fracturing your mind when you tell lies. You're not just fracturing your mind, actually. You're fracturing your relationships. As people start to see you lying, they're not going to trust you. They're going to draw back from you. And one of the worst consequences of lying habitually is you stop trusting other people because you assume everyone else is lying too. So you're fracturing your mind. You're fracturing your relationships and your community. Lies are a poison that tears apart the fabric of reality. And so one of the things the book of James is going to say is, leading this mature, complete, integrated life involves telling the truth. It's not only morally right, it's wise, it's good for us to live that way, just with one world in our heads, the real one, all the time. Uh, As James walks through the letter, he'll have lots of other examples of ways we fracture reality by showing favoritism. By saying we believe one thing, but not living it out. By living in a future fantasy world rather than living in the here and now. There are all ways in which we can fracture the universe. And James is saying, no, maturity, wholeness, completion, integrity of life, a fully integrated life. That is the goal of wisdom in verse 4. And the way we get there comes through trials. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because it's through that testing that this work of maturing and perfecting and completing that God is doing happens. Now, we've got to be careful. It doesn't say rejoice at the trial. The trial itself may be very sad and very hard. But rejoice at the opportunity the trial gives to ponder and think about and reflect on what God is doing inside you. It is very often in a time of trial, isn't it, that we stop and think, what's going on? Why is it affecting me this way? Why do I find this particularly hard? It's a chance to go under the surface and think about what's going on in your heart. What is this revealing about what I really believe, what I really love, what I really fear, where I'm going with my life, what I think is important? It's often in times of trial where we will stop and do that work. And as we do that work, we'll get to see God at work within us. So take the example of lying again. Uh, It's in trials we might say, why do I find it so hard to tell the truth here? Why am I so tempted to lie in this situation? What is that revealing about what's going on in my life, what's going on in my heart? And as we ponder and consider, the word consider is is to reckon, to to really hammer it out with yourself, to, to think deeply and probe. It's not trite. It's not simplistic. But as you go through trials, it is an opportunity to pause, to do some deep and serious thinking about what's going on under the surface. And if you do all that and in a hard trial situation still tell the truth, you go, wow, God is maturing me into being a truthful person. It's one thing to tell the truth if it's easy and there's nothing riding on it, but to tell the truth when it hurts, to keep a promise when it's hard, oh, wow, no, actually, that demonstrates that my character is becoming more truthful. I'm becoming more faithful in keeping my promises. And it's in trials and testings that that character is being matured. And so James says... Think about it hard when you're in trials and see the work of God maturing and perfecting and bringing integrity to life in your heart. That is the goal of wisdom. But then we move on to our second point, the source of wisdom. And I love this because James is clearly a pastor. He clearly understands people. He's a leader of the early church and he must know people very well because as I described that beautiful integrated life, that complete consistency, if you're anything like me, there's a bit of you that's going, yeah, but I just don't know how to do that. I just struggle with that. I, I don't feel up to that. But look what he says at the start of verse 5. If any of you lacks. He knows as he holds this vision out of this fully integrated perfect life, people are going to think, oh, that seems really hard. And so he doesn't leave us there. He shows us that we have a resource. If any of you lacks wisdom, you can't see this grain of the universe. You can't live your life out in this way of wholeness and integrity. What does he say? Ask God. Uh, the way the source, you're gonna f- the source of this wisdom, the way you're going to get it at work in your life, is by turning to God in prayer. Having deep relationship and fellowship and intimacy with him in prayer, connecting with him, worshipping him, adoring him, praising him. It's through that connection with God that the channel to the source of wisdom is opened up. And wisdom can start to do its work in our own lives, maturing us. Interesting, verse 5, you should ask God who gives. It says generously, but it, it's not the normal word for generous. Generous. This is the only place in the New Testament this word crops up. It probably means something a bit more like simply or undividedly. God gives undividedly. Um, uh, The word actually is related to the word for a piece of fabric that has no folds in it. Uh, Now, if you have a fold in fabric, you can make a pocket or something like that in your garment. And as you do that, you can hide things in a pocket, there's something that's hidden. And what it's saying is God doesn't give like that. There are no hidden agendas, no hidden motives. He gives freely, openly, simply, undividedly. We might say God gives with no strings attached. Uh, There's many cases in literature of people who approach a more powerful being and ask for wisdom or power or knowledge or something. Uh, You've got the genie from Aladdin there, uh, an example of that, where you have wishes granted to you when you go and ask. And the other picture is a woodcut of Faustus and the demon Mephistopheles, who, uh, you know, again, they make a bargain for power and wisdom and knowledge and things like that. But in all those cases, there are strings attached. It's not as simple as it first appears. God's not like that. God gives undividedly, simply, straightforwardly, no strings, no folds, no hidden motives no hidden agenda, and without finding faults. Why does God give like that? God gives like that because of his own nature. You see, God, in his own nature, is fully integrated. His being, his character, is in complete harmony. The way theologians have described this down the ages is to say that God is simple or undivided. Uh, we've got some uh, quotes here. Um, In the 39 articles, which is the Anglican church's confession of faith, first article says God is without parts. That's what it means. He's undivided, simple. He is fully integrated in his own being and character. He's not in conflict with himself. His love and his justice are not opposites. His justice is a loving justice. His love is a just love. And the same is true of all his other qualities. They're in complete harmony. And it's not just an Anglican teaching. If you're a Presbyterian here, the Westminster Confession of Faith says the same thing in chapter 2. If you're a Baptist, the Savoy Declaration says exactly the same. Um, The Roman Catholic Church teaches the same. The Fourth Lateran Council uh, uh, said that this was true. The Eastern Orthodox, they also believe this. Christians for 2,000 years have believed this about God. He is without parts. He is fully integrated in complete harmony in his own being. Perfect Whole, one. And this is part of God's beauty, that his character is so harmonious and whole like this. When the psalmist says, worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness, he wants us to be reflecting on the nature of the God we worship. As we see his beauty and his majesty, the coherence and completeness of his character, we are drawn to him in prayer, in awe, in wonder, in adoration, in worship. If any of you lacks wisdom, come to this God with your whole heart in worship and adoration and ask him. Because a key principle in the Bible is you become like what you worship. So if you worship a God who is fully integrated in his own life, fully consistent, all he is, all the time, all at once, can't chop bits off him, he doesn't have pieces that he can lose. He's all he is, all at once, all the time, completely consistent. If you worship a God like that, and you become like what you worship, what's it going to do to your character? It's going to mature you. It's going to complete you. It'll be part of that process of perfection. As we come before God with our whole hearts and ask for the wisdom from this perfect, simple, integrated God. And that's what verses 6 to 8 are getting at. Don't doubt. Don't be tossed around like a wave on the sea. Don't be double-minded or literally double-hearted. It's saying when you come to God, you've got to come with your whole heart. You've got to come leaning on him in dependence, in true worship. Not splitting yourself off, saying, well, I'll try prayer, but actually I'll put my trust somewhere else as well. That's being double-minded, double-hearted. You've got to come to God and acknowledge him as the true and only source of wisdom. And this, this idea of the simplicity of God and this wholeheartedness before God, is actually there, right there at the heart of the Old Testament. The heart of Old Testament worship, and still for Jews today, is the Shema Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is complete, he is perfect, he is whole. Fullness and oneness is his very nature. And how does it continue? Because he is one, therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Give everything you are to this God in worship. For as you do, you will become like what you worship. That maturity, that completion that verse 4 talks about, is a, is a result of the worship and adoration of God as it comes through testing, it comes through trial. The goal of wisdom, the source of wisdom, the perspective of wisdom, thirdly. Because as this work is going on in your heart, as you are being transformed and changed, it does give you a new way of looking at the world. Now, Verses 9 to 11 just have a, a little puzzle in them, which is uh, verse 10, the rich, it talks about. And it isn't very clear, and the commentators basically split 50-50 on it, whether we're talking about a rich Christian, a rich believer, or a rich unbeliever. It seems James's first uh, hearers were probably being persecuted by certain rich oppressors in their communities. So he might be talking about those oppressors, therefore not a Christian, or he might be talking about people within the family Of believers who are rich. Either way, his main point in these verses is the same, but the application, direct application, is just a little different. Because what he says to both of them, basically, is this. The true value of a human life is your internal character. Not your wealth, not your status, not your position in the world. Those things are fleeting, They're like wild flowers. That's the image in verse 10 and 11. They're here for a bit, but they're going to fade. Anyone familiar with Jesus teaching in the Gospels will hear some echoes there. He is also saying, in a sense, your life is more than the abundance of your possessions. Also, Jesus is teaching. There is something more precious in you than anything you own or any of the stuff that you have. So if you're a believer... That means you're walking this path, going through this process of being matured, being completed, being perfected. You are tapped into the source of wisdom. You are in fellowship with the God who made the world, who made you, who is perfect and simple. And in awe and adoration, in relationship with him, you are being transformed more into his likeness. And therefore, you're being made ready, being made fit for a role in his eternal kingdom. Because of the way he's shaping your character, you have a place in eternity with him where you have valuable and precious work to do forever. That is a high position, isn't it, believers in humble circumstances? You can boast, literally boast, in that you're being made ready to take an eternal role in God's kingdom as he shapes your character. For the rich, they are to boast in their humiliation. If he's talking to a believer, that probably means you are to take pride not in your wealth, not in any of those external status symbols that you might have, but you take pride only in the fact that you belong to this body of Christians, this humiliated, despised, persecuted group in the first century. You say, I'm with them. Because actually what really matters is not any wealth or status I have on the outside. What matters is what God is doing in his people and in my heart. So I'm going to take pride that I stand with you, if, if it's a Christian. If it's not a Christian, it's actually quite a severe warning. He's saying to the richer pressures, you have nothing left to boast in. The only thing you're going to boast in is all going to fall apart. And on judgment day, you're going to be humiliated. If he's talking to non-Christians, he's just saying all that worldly wealth and status, which seems so important now, is going to vanish into nothingness in the end. Now, the Bible nowhere says that um, uh, wealth and things like that are in and of themselves evil. But the Bible wants us to put them in perspective. They are temporary. They're not truly valuable in any eternal sense. And that perspective of wisdom says, actually, the most valuable thing about everyone in this room is what's happening in their character, what's happening in your heart. Way more important than any of the external trappings of wealth and power. Inner wealth of character is more valuable than the outer wealth of cash or comfort. The value of a human being is more than their economic productivity. We live in a world where actually that is the message a lot of our young people are growing up with. That you've got to get skills, you've got to get education so that you can be economically productive in society. Nothing wrong with being economically productive in society. But it's not the most valuable thing about you. Its value is very temporary compared to the kind of person God is growing you to be. That is the truly precious thing. That's the thing that should take our thoughts and our energy I wonder if that's a perspective the modern world in 2024 could do with recovering a little bit. If that would help us in societies, in communities, in our personal lives. The goal of wisdom, the source of wisdom, the perspective uh, of wisdom. But as we come in to finish, I want us to end by looking at the perfect model of wisdom, who is the Lord Jesus. It is his words that lie behind the book of James in many ways we've been given before our eyes a great vision of a wholly integrated life we've been said that we've been told we have access to the source where that wisdom comes from in communion with god how it will shape and change the way we think and the way we see uh, the world but the key thing is although god is at work maturing his people we do stumble we do fail we do struggle to live it out perfectly And therefore, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the one who did live it perfectly. The one who can make up for our failings and can be our guide and example day to day as we seek to live this out. Because Jesus did live wisdom. He didn't just preach it. Yes, a lot of James comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. That wise teaching, that powerful, effective teaching of Jesus, which has been so precious to so many down the centuries. But notice, before he preaches it, he's lived it. Because in Matthew chapter 4, he's taken up to a high mountain by Satan. And Satan says, I'll give you it all. All the treasures, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. Jesus, think about the good you could do with all that power. And Jesus says, no. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knows that that power is worth nothing if it's in the hands of a double-minded double-hearted person. If he's committed partly to Satan and partly to God, all that power will mean nothing and it won't bring about goodness in the end. He knows the important thing is where his heart is at before God. And so he says, no, I am wholly, entirely, wholeheartedly committed to God. And it's from there that he goes and preaches. And why do his words carry such authority? Well, yes, because he's the son of God. But also because they come with the conviction that what this man preaches is also what he has lived. He's a fully integrated, the only fully integrated human being. That whole, simple, undivided integrity of heart and life that he models and lives out for us perfectly. And it's through that life that God transforms the world, brings salvation to his people... And this process of maturing, completing, perfecting can take place. So as we uh, go from here today, as we think through the book of James, I hope it's wet your appetite for what's to come, but, but it's going to show us how to live wisely, integrated, mature, complete lives. And it's going to put before our eyes the Lord Jesus who does it perfectly and is our model and our guide and our help. When we fall, uh, we're going to sing in a moment, uh, but before we do, let me pray. Father, God, thank you that you care about our lives. Do you want us to live out our faith consistently in a way that works? Thank you that you can provide the wisdom that we need to do that? Help us to have that big vision of, of the kind of lives you want us to live. Help us to remember you are the source of that wisdom and and never try and do it without being connected to you in prayer and worship and adoration. Help us to take note of the new perspective it gives us on life. But all the while, help us to do it with the perfect model of Jesus before our eyes to guide us on our way and to lift us when we fall. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.